I remember about four months into our new building, and a guy came in. He said, you know what? My wife drug me to church. We saw this big castle-looking building going in here around Newtown uh, Road. And I came in, and the first song I heard on the first day the church was open was Brand New Day. And I felt like this is the church for me. Because I've been through a tough time, our marriage has been through a tough time, and we need a brand new day. In fact, that's the reason we chose that song for the first song we played in this building eight years ago. Because we want to set the idea that we're all looking for new starts, new beginnings, new habits, new ways in which we can bring significance to our life. And like that earlier song said, we've got to look in the mirror. If you want to change the world, we want to change the world, but are willing to look in the mirror and say, it starts with me. What changes do I need to make? What adaptations do I need to make? As a husband, as a father, as a son, as a leader, as an employer, as an employee, how can I be more humble and kind? How do I learn how to be the best version of myself? And so in our series, Well Connected, we're talking about how to be connected with God so we can ultimately be connected with the best version of ourselves. That's what God wants for us, to give us life and life more abundant, he said. To do that, we're pulling back the curtain and showing you kind of why we as a church do what we do. In fact, that song, Brand New Day, we did for an Easter service a couple years ago as well. Because we thought, you know, the biggest day for those of us who believe in Jesus is we believe Easter was a big day where God accomplished some things that can bring forgiveness and meaning and peace into your life as well. So do that. If you haven't been with us, we've been talking about Horizon's mission statement. And our mission statement is, is really simple. We're trying to comfortably connect people to God through the Bible, and a community of growing Christ followers. Today I want to talk about what it means to grow. How do we become a growing person, a changing person? When you think about your life, do you have any goals for what you want to be as a dad, a mom, a leader? you probably got financial goals. You probably have professional goals. Do you have any spiritual goals? And do you have any strategies for reaching those goals? Do you know what the obstacles are? Hurdles you need to overcome, things you need to wrestle with. I want to talk about that. What does it mean to grow? And how are we trying to create environments to help people grow? Children to grow. Students to grow. People who are not yet convinced, maybe, or never, never going to be convinced about things about the Bible to grow. People who love the Bible. 20-year Bible veterans. How do we help them take the next step to grow? I think what you're going to find in your life, if you talk to anyone who's made some steps, is that spiritual growth is both intentional and relational. That people don't usually coast into meaningful things. They intentionally plan, aim, make a plan for it. I got a good uh, phone call from a good friend of mine. And we've been dialoguing for about uh, maybe 10 years now. He's not a person of Christian faith for sure, but he's open in spiritual matters. We've hung out together, we've got a relationship, we talk movies all the time. Occasionally we talk spiritual things. He called me up, he said, Chad, I'm looking for a spiritual mentor. I said, oh, that's great. He said, because I really want to take serious my spiritual life. And that really meant a lot to me. He said, I may not you know, end up with a Judeo-Christian um, take on things, but I'm the kind of person who, when I want to move someplace, when I want to get someplace, I take it seriously. And I'm at a place in my career, in my life, that I want to really take seriously being intentional but identifying where I'm trying to be and how to get there. And I really respected that about him. That even though he wasn't sure exactly where he'd end up, he was being intentional about the process. I think if you talk to anyone who's made steps, it's almost always relational too. There's always somebody who went, I, I met somebody, a neighbor who has something I want. Tell me how you got that. Because I don't believe the same way you do and I don't want to believe the same way you do, but I want the peace you have. And I want the love you have. It might be a neighbor. For many of us, our faith journey was because of our mom or a dad, a pastor, a coach, 
or teacher. It's rarely a bumper sticker, right? I've never read a bumper sticker and go, wow, I need to think about that. I've never listened to any Christian radio, uh, very little rather, and, and Christian television. I mean, if anything, I, I take steps away from God when I watch religious television. It, it's rarely things and gimmicks. It's people. And I see people living out, incarnating some kind of truth. And I'm like, man, I want some of that. Really, you believe that and that's how you got it? Mm. Well, tell me more. A great conversation, I think it was about four weeks ago after the 4.30 service on Saturday. A guy came up to me, I was sitting right here, and he said, hey, would you pray for me? I said, sure. He said, can I tell you my story? I've been coming about eight years, and I've never talked to you, but I need to tell you what God's been doing in my life. So I'd love to hear about it. So we sat over here, he says, my, my ex-wife is dying, and I want you to pray. Maybe there's a slim chance. So we were praying together, a lot of tears. He said, I've got to tell you, my, my ex-wife and I are still best friends. Because I, I've realized over the last 15 years that I'm the one that wrecked our marriage. I mean, certainly it took both of us, but it was primarily me. I was so focused on goals for my career. I had the 5,000 know, square foot house. I had everything, and I, and I built a house, and I lost my home. And ultimately, I wasn't the kind of husband I needed to be. And it was that breakage that really forced me to think about some things and pursue some things. She had a faith that I wasn't really interested in, but she also kept asking me to sort of adapt to her a little bit, and I just wasn't willing to do it. But eight years ago, you were talking about the importance of living a selfless life. And I've been divorced for about four years at that point. He said, can I show you something? He pulled out a, his a phone. He flipped through. He showed me a picture of what looked like a I don't know, six, six-year-old boy. He said, this is one of my best friends. I said, awesome. Is that your son? No. About six or seven years ago, he said, you gave a message about reaching out and trying to impact other people. And I had this empty 5,000-square-foot house. And I thought, you know what, I need to start not just investing in me, but in others. I met this single mom. She was pregnant. She didn't have a place to go. She didn't have a place to stay. So I gave her a place to stay. Baby was born. They come over all the time and go swimming at my house. And I've become a surrogate father to this young man to love on him, to care for him. And I'm finding myself giving of myself. And it was that relationship with my wife. It was a relationship of, with the church and people in the church I saw growing who challenged me to make those, those steps. And we prayed together, and he went on and telling the incredible stories of just somebody who's been wrestling with his own spiritual journey and how God began to grow him by taking his focus on himself and putting it on others. So today I want to talk about how do we do that, or what are some questions you can ask yourself on your journey to do that. To do that, though, we're going to look at a very interesting passage of the Bible about how spiritual progress works or spiritual growth works. It's actually in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at two wonder women. Wonder Women in this passage. And one of them is what you and I know as Wonder Woman. So if you're a Wonder Woman fan, it's the one time in the Bible Wonder Woman shows up. Which might make you think, well, this is another reason why I can't take the Bible seriously. Well, I want to give you a little history on Wonder Woman. And her name is Diana, if you read the comics or you read the Greek myths. And Diana was the daughter of Zeus, if you remember that. If you're not, shows up in the movies a couple times. Um, but she was actually a real Greek myth. that was very, very popular in the days Christianity was spreading. And I think what we're going to learn from Diana is that you and I, like, really, Diana was like a real Greek myth. There's a lot of confusion about Diana, I'll talk about in a moment. And the same way people had to, in those days, get figured out what this Christianity thing was, there's a lot of, a, a lot of confusion, they had to take some steps and ask some questions, I think we can do the same thing as we learn from this first Wonder Woman. So if you've ever learned or studied a little bit of Greek mythology, here, this is the same woman, by the way, uh, in different times in history. There, she's Diana also known as Artemis, also the, the daughter of Zeus. So here on the left-hand side is kind of how she's originally depicted in Greek literature. She was a warrior. She was a warrior goddess. 
And so she was known as sort of this warrior that was worshipped and celebrated in the Greek-Roman Empire. Well, then over time, they morphed her. They started calling her Diana or Artemis. And she went from sort of warrior goddess to uh, fertility god, the many-breasted one, the, kind of like a, a, bee, a bee goddess kind of person. And she was highly worshipped, gigantic worship center in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. I got a chance to visit there a few years ago. And, of course, the comics picked it up, still gave the basic idea. She's the, the daughter of Zeus. She's a god, and, you know, she is a warrior, and she's raised on an island of, 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 uh, of warriors as, as well. But this is the same woman over time. And you can see, if I just showed you these three statues, you'd say, are these the same person? No. Well, actually, they are. There's a lot of confusion about who she was. And when you study something like this, something you've never heard about or maybe not looked a lot into, like, well, what part came from the comics? What part actually came from the Greek myths? What part was somebody distorting into the bee god? And what part was the original warrior piece? Is it all fiction? Is any of it real? Obviously, I don't necessarily may believe in Zeus or believe in, 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 uh, in Diana, but they did. What did it mean for them to believe in it, right? So in the same way there's a lot of confusion about Wonder Woman that has moved through time, we're going to find that that same confusion happened by these people who loved, I mean, love, 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 worship, 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 Diana, Wonder Woman. They begin to hear about Jesus when Paul steps into this town. So again, this town in Ephesus, I've been there. The streets they talk about, the amphitheaters they talk about, there's evidence for all these pieces. I want to show you in just a second. So the first question, if you want to try and clear up confusion about whatever your spiritual journey is, I think you need to ask yourself a question. I think it's a worthwhile question wherever you are in your spiritual journey. Am I willing to investigate whatever my confusion is? And sometimes are you willing to investigate not just your confusion, but your caricatures? Because sometimes we reject something that's not the real thing that we're looking at. We reject the caricatures of that thing. Right? Haven't people caricature, you know, like all the lawyer jokes are going, right? So people reject lawyering because they, they've heard all the lawyer jokes. Or, or, or you know, the doctors, everybody's got a bedside manner. You're like, no, no, that's a caricature. Some do, but not all. Don't reject all doctors. Don't stereotype or broad sweep all of us because of a caricature. Well, the same thing happens here. So about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. So this is before Christianity was called Christianity. They called it the way. I want to walk in the way of Jesus. And there was much commotion and confusion about the way. Now, there's a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana. She's making little Wonder Woman statues. She brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So they're making a killing in Ephesus with their Wonder Woman statues. A killing. And this guy named Paul shows up. And he says... Listen, I just want to encourage you. I want to challenge you with something. If you have to build your God, if you have to make your God out of rock or stone or wood, and if your God needs something from you, it's probably not a real God. Because you can't make something that made you. And if God needs something from you, then doesn't that make you more of the God than the person you're talking to? Because he needs something from you. So he begins to have these philosophical conversations, so much so that people began to question whether or not their little Wonder Woman gods and Zeus and Apollo and all these myths that they'd grown up in were true. And they began to investigate. But to do that, they're not trying to figure out, like, what is Christianity? And every time I talk to somebody about Jesus, religion, God, often what they reject, what they've heard from a priest, a pastor, is a caricature. It's like, that's not even what I believe. That's not even what the Bible teaches. Oh my goodness, you've rejected something that I don't like either. 
because of all the Christian hypocrites, because of the Crusades, because of the fill in the blank. And, and there's a, this great diagram I came across years ago that I think is true is that often before we can reject the claims of Jesus, what I'll call the cross chasm, did Jesus really live? Did he really die? Did he raise himself from the dead? If so, what does it mean? Those are important questions. Whatever conclusion you come to, one ought to wrestle with those. How did that message transform the Greek Roman Empire in history? That's a good thing to study and, and wrestle with. But often we don't even get to that chasm because we're at the caricature chasm. Ha, it's buddy Jesus. You know, all Christians are Republicans. Or if you're down south of us from all Christians were Democrats. Or all Christians have a fish bumper sticker. Or all Christians are weak. Or all Christians are cowards. Or all Christians lie to you. I had a buddy say, you know, you know the reason, uh, you, you know what you need to know about, um, about Christian contractors? I said, oh, what's that? They always rip you off. Oh, I'm like, oh my goodness. I was like, no, they don't. I know some that, no, but that was his caricature. They all rip you off. Christians are all hypocrites. They all just want your money and blah, 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 right? And there's enough evidence for the caricatures of Christianity. It's no wonder anyone ever gets to wrestle with Jesus. Even Gandhi used to say, you're Jesus I like. You're Christians not so much. So what I want to encourage you to do is to ask yourself, have you wrestled with and investigated the real teachings of Jesus? Or have you rejected a caricature of it? Because let me tell you, Christians, and I'm one of them, we are horrible, horrible examples of what Jesus tried to teach. We are. And part of being honest is saying, man, I've been a horrible example. But Jesus teach me that's what's broken in me, and I need to continue to own it, get forgiveness for it, and to move in his direction. So I think it's an important question. And Paul does it. So Paul comes to this group of people who are confused about the way. They've rejected the way. They're not sure what it's about. But they say, hey, let's talk a little bit more. And Paul goes around town talking to these Wonder Woman, Diana worshipers, and he begins to persuade them to think about this new type of teaching, this new type of God, this new type of idea that, that God is not struggling with evil. All the Greek gods struggle with evil. Right? How is Zeus going to help you with your temper? Have you ever studied Zeus? That guy's got a temper problem. And his dad was even worse. As I told you a few weeks ago, his dad ate his brother and his sister. And he had to sort of syrup epitaph and get uh, Kronos to puke him up. So the Greek gods struggled with betrayal and lust and anger. The Greek gods were not helpful in helping you with your problems because they would struggle with it just as much. And Paul begins to describe a God who's always good. The source of joy and peace and gentleness and self-control. And courage and strength. And he's never the source of evil, always the source of good. And they're like, well, tell me more about that. I thought you Christians were just people who thought the dead guy was alive. Well, we're that too. But we believe in a God that's totally different from the God you've heard about. And he begins to persuade them. Now, look what happens. He called them together with the workers of silver occupation. So this guy's losing money off his little uh, Wonder Woman statue. So he calls together all the craftsmen in the town and all the people who love Diana in the town. And he says, man, you know that you've our prosperity by this trade. We're doing well in business. This Paul has persuaded and turned people away from us, saying that these aren't gods which are made with hands. So not only is our trade in danger, but the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificent destroyed whom all Asia and, and the world worship. We've got to do something about this. We've got to stop this. And I don't know about for you, it might be the fear of association with Christians. It might be the fear of losing your competitive advantage because I've got to be kind to everybody and I can't ever negotiate hard. And that's not true. It might be the fear of, uh, of the unknown. What does it mean for me to surrender my life to God? That sounds weird and unknown and 
fearful. Or maybe for a lot of folks, it's just a fear of being an idiot. Because honestly, you think a lot of Christians are idiots, and you've met some, and they are idiots. In fact, I had a friend, he just went down recently to go fishing at Lake Norris. And on his Facebook post, he said, I was on my way to Lake Norris, and somebody comes up behind me, taps me on the shoulder. Hey, are you saved, brother? My friend's like, no. Can I tell you about that? Please don't. Well, let me do it anyway. So he sits down at the restaurant with him and begins to tell him about why he's going to hell and blah, 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 blah. And my friend's like, really? Well, why aren't you a Christian? My friend's like, well, because I don't believe in talking snakes, because I'm an engineer, because I believe in facts, because I believe in things you can touch with your hands, uh, and uh, I don't believe in talking donkeys, and I don't believe that somebody dying 2,000 years ago on a cross had anything to do with whether or not I could live my life. And this poor kid's like, okay. And so I called my friend up. I said, hey, I heard you had a religious encounter in Nashville. He said, yeah. He said, oh, his intentions were good, but just so turned me off. He said, well, we need to do lunch. You know, every time we go to lunch, we talk about spiritual matters. But it's in the context of relationship where you care about each other. No one's a project. No one's trying to turn somebody into something. You just share. Friends share what's important to them. Why did you come to that conclusion? Tell me more. Why have you not come to that conclusion? It's relationship that you investigate best in. The other question. Will I investigate my objections in areas I'm less informed in? I mean, isn't it true that there's some things that you know a little bit about, so you rejected the whole thing? Wouldn't it show some humility to go, hey, I want to admit that I'm not as informed about some things as I need to be, or I want to be, before I reject it? That's what happens here. All the people gather together in this auditorium because they don't know what, what's happening exactly about this Christians. All they know is that their prophets are in jeopardy, which is a legitimate concern. But they've rejected the whole thing because maybe the Wonder Woman statues aren't selling. And no, this is so funny. So when they heard this, they were full of wrath. And they cried out saying, Great is Diana of Ephesus! Great is Wonder Woman! So the whole city was filled with confusion. They're confused. Why is everybody so mad about Wonder Woman? Why is the guy who's telling us there might be a different God making everybody mad? They cried out the assembly. So they all gather in this auditorium. Everyone is very, very confused. And some of them did not even know why they had come together. It's a classic mob mentality. Why are we here? I don't know. My friends told me to show up. Great is Diana of Ephesus! All right? Now, I had read this when I was a kid in Sunday school class, and I'm not sure what I pictured, but maybe 20 people. It says here at the end of the passage, look, with one voice they cried out for two hours, two hours, this crowd, greatest Wonder Woman, we love Wonder Woman. Two hours, that's, that's a commitment to Wonder Woman, i got to tell you. So I don't know how many people I pictured when I heard about this in Sunday school class, but when I was in Turkey, and I'm walking through Ephesus, and our leader brought us in the back door, so we didn't get to see it coming until we got there. Opens the door, and we step into this arena where this occurred. Let me show you what that arena looks like. That arena, built by the Greek Romans, holds 10,000 seats. They packed this place, 10,000 seats. And for two hours, they're chanting about Wonder Woman. What must Christianity be that would create such turmoil that 10,000 people would show up to say, this is a big deal. If that many people are going to show up to chant about Wonder Woman and the differences between Wonder Woman and whatever Paul was claiming was Jesus, alive, real, historical, it probably is worth investigating. I mean, I didn't know about that. But, and I just encourage you to delay rejection until you've really done an investigation. And maybe you have, and that's a conclusion you've come to. But sometimes we're, we're rejecting caricatures, and we haven't really looked into what, what, what's really the thing 
In fact, we were seated up in one of the seats there. We got to look down. This is what it looks like from the stage. They're recreating it. And the acoustics are amazing. No sound system. One person can talk and everybody can hear it. It was just amazing. And loud as can be, the acoustics the Greeks and Romans figured out. And Paul, little Paul, a tent maker, a professional, a salesman, is such, doing such an incredible job of selling something he says is true, that he says happened to him, that people are beginning to question their whole way of life in the city of Rome. Third question. Will I handle my objections in an orderly manner? You see, this mob rule is about to happen. If the, mob, if the crowd goes into mob rule, things are going to happen pretty bad. So actually, one of the governors or mayors stows up and it's kind of like, hey, guys, 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 just get out of hand. He says, men of Ephesus, what man is there that does not know the city of Ephesus is the temple of the guardian Diana? The Diana's temple is not in any jeopardy. That's what we're known for here. That's why people come here. Don't exaggerate. Don't get too worried about Diana, the temple falling apart just because of this Christian guy and the way message. But he says, we all know the, the great goddess Diana of the image which fell down from Zeus. There's the Greek myth right there. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. So this is just the mayor of the town. I think that's just great advice in your spiritual journey. Don't do anything rashly. Don't accept rashly. Don't reject rashly. Let's look into this. What are your objections? Why are you rejecting it? What is it about this rejecting? What, is, what makes Christianity unique and similar to the other spiritual forces or other spiritual teachings you've heard before? Because they're not all different. They do overlap in some areas. But they're also very radically different in some areas. Would you investigate that? In fact, as it goes on, he says, God, by the way, guys, there's a way to deal with issues. If this guy you feel like is stealing your money, take him to the court. There's orderly ways to deal with this if you feel like something's going wrong. And I say the same thing. Do you have an orderly account to help you in your journey? I know what I'm investigating. I know where I think I'm trying to end up. At least I'm aware of some things I'm rejecting. I want to make sure I've get looked into that. I want to have an orderly account on, on how I'm moving in that direction in your spiritual journey. I told you I'd talk about two Wonder Women. So that's the first one is Diana. The second one that, that Paul comes across, a woman named Lydia. Lydia is a high-end entrepreneur, a high-end salesman that changes the world, literally. It's amazing more is not written about her. And with Diana, we learn how to clear up confusion by having maybe specific steps or questions to ask yourself. With Lydia, we find the power of relationship. The way she grows spiritually is by making connections with colleagues have different perspectives on faith. And Paul becomes one of them. Here's what a, a Greek Roman would look like in those days. This is sort of the, what the look and feel would be. So this isn't Lydia, but this is what uh, a woman was dressed like in those days. So someone like Lydia, imagine her, and she is on a journey, and she's trying to get in touch with her spirituality. She used to go to Jewish synagogue. She was called a, a God-fearer, which was someone who didn't believe the way they did, but showed up and would ask questions. She's a God-fearer. So she's in the middle of just on a journey, not sure where she's going to end up, but she wants to connect with people and hear their story. And we find at least three things she discovers. Number one, we find out she is a seller of purple. Now she lives in this very prominent town called Philippi. You can find on a map, the archaeological find for that. This was like the New York of its day. Amazing, foremost city it's called. And as she's there one day, going to a time of prayer at this Jewish synagogue she doesn't necessarily believe in, but she's interested in their God being very different from the Greek gods, and she heard. Hmm. She's open. She's curious. She wants a dialogue. And it says that she's a seller of purple. Now, in purple, the only people who could wear the color purple were the royals. 
And so she is an elite high-end salesperson to the elite customers. So she has found success. And now she's looking for significance. It's not like, oh, my life is so terrible. I need some God in it. I need a crutch. No, she's doing quite fine, thank you. And now that I've accomplished all my goals, and now that I've really succeeded above all my colleagues, huh, is this all there is? So she's investigating spirituality to see if there's some significance and some spiritual connection she can connect to her work in life. So she's a seller of purple, and what she begins to discover is that success and significant are not incompatible. You can be a successful person and a person of faith without losing your competitive advantage. You can be a successful person without becoming you know, a weird Christian. There can be a best version of you that can come out through faith. And so she begins to investigate and talk. We find that she discovers that spiritual faith and growth happens one step at a time. It's usually not one giant leap. You know, people have these stories, right? And it's, I'm not saying that's true, but some people are like, one day I woke up and poof, you know, God appeared to me or I heard something, I read about it, I heard a sermon and poof, I turned into a Christian. And you're like, hmm, well maybe I engage your brain a little bit more because I don't sign on the bottom line with anything until I've read the fine print, let alone with God, right? You're thinking, that does not sound like a good plan. Lydia, we see somebody who slowly over time, one step at a time, investigates her journey. Therefore, it says, Paul's writing, and Luke, he says, uh, we ran uh, a straight course to this place, and the next day came to another place. You can look them up, doesn't matter. Uh, and then they get to Philippi, this big city, which is the foremost city of the part of Macedonia colony. All right? And go to the next slide, and here's what happens. On the Sabbath, this is the Jewish day of worship, synagogue day, we went out to a city by the riverside where prayer was customarily made. So she would come to Jewish synagogue and read and listen to what Judaism was teaching about God. Then she had a group of people she met with where prayer, it was a custom. She made a regular rhythm of trying to practice prayer. What does it mean to talk to God? How can I talk to God? And it just so happened that day by the river, not in some church organization, just by the river, they're having a chat. Paul and Luke sit down and they start chatting and she starts asking questions. And again, we see she heard them. Well, that's different. Tell, now, why do you believe that? What about this objection? And they begin to dialogue on this and, and talk about this. And what we again see is she goes to synagogue. Huh. She starts trying out prayer at the riverside. Huh. Happens to run into a guy, Luke and Paul. Huh. Tell me more about that. And then she was open one step at a time. It's in the process of her learning and dialoguing she begins to take steps in her journey. I remember that I got invited down to Naples. A friend of mine invited me to come down to his condo years ago. And while we were there, he invited me to go to the country club. They had a speaker there who was a professional golfer. And I had maybe heard him like 20 years earlier. And he shared an incredible story. He said, you know, religion becomes all ethereal and academic until it becomes personal. He was a follower of Jesus who traveled around. And he was also a professional golfer. He taught people to golf. And he used to be a professional uh, basketball player, if I remember. So he was traveling over in Japan playing with some business uh, leaders in Japan who he'd gotten to be friends with. But they practice uh, ancestral worship, and they also believe in spiritism. And part of their belief system is that when someone dies, their spirit leaves the body. And if you're not careful, if you're too close to them, that spirit will inhabit you, and you'll end up with uh, bad juju or something. I can't remember exactly what the phrase is, but basically bad stuff. Well, they happen to be out on the golf course, and he's talking about the difference between uh, Christianity's view that, you know, there is good, there is evil, but you don't have to be fear, you have to live with fear. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. You don't have to be live with fear. And they're like, I don't know about the Jesus dying and coming back again, but I like the not living with fear stuff. Well, as they happen to be on, the, I don't know, hole nine or something, one of the friends, there's three of them and the guy who's the golfer, um, the basketball player and golfer, one of them has a heart attack. He falls and he has a heart attack and he's dying. 
And his two friends immediately, they love him, they care about him, they're business associates, they back away from him. Because in their belief system, it looks like he's going to die. That spirit might end up in us, and you don't want that to happen. And this guy who didn't know him very well, this Christian man, jumps down, gives him CPR. You know, you know, basically, it turns out it wasn't a heart attack, but saves his life. They get the medics in there, and they save his life. This guy is suddenly very interested in Christianity. What allowed you, unlike my two friends, to not be scared about potential evil spirits? You you might say, well, that's superstition. They could go to a medical uh, class and fix that as well. But it became very personal. And because they saw something in him, a lack of fear, a a desire to care for somebody who didn't even know to save his life, one of them ended up becoming a follower of Jesus about a year later if he went on his own journey. What happened one step at a time and one person at a time? So what about your journey? That's the other thing we learn about Lydia is it's actually not just one step at a time, it's one person at a time. One person at a time. In her journey, what happens here? One person at a time. She's praying, right? right? So she's praying at the synagogue at, at, as the custom was. And then God opens her heart. And as God opens her heart, go ahead and put the next slide up. What we see is that when God opened her heart, she began to worship God. And the word worship sounds very religious. It just means to give worth to something. Hey, I didn't think your God had any worth. I thought Diana had worth. I'm starting to see there's some worthness to what you're talking about. I'd like some lack of fear. I'd like some forgiveness. I'd like some heaven. I'd like some connection with my own soul. So she began to give worth to this idea of God. And it was in that process of her giving worth to this idea that God opened her heart, she said, to hear the things spoken by Paul. Now, how many steps is she into the process before that happened? Many. How many people has she met? A lot of people, rabbis. A lot of people at the Riverside Custom Prayer Group. And now she's got Paul and Luke she's chatting with. It's in that process God opened her heart to be open to some new things. Then she goes home and tells her household, her husband. She tells her kids. She tells her you know, aunt, uncle. And again, remember, this woman is a high-end salesperson. Right? So this person is like, when she invites you to your house, you come to her house. She's going to sell, sell, sell. And so people come to her house. In fact, Paul and Luke want to leave, and she persuades them to stay for for a longer period of time to help her in her newfound faith. And they get baptized, and and so they end up kind of going public as a household, one faith at a time, one person at a time through that process. So again, what I want to show you is it's it's just a normal process. But notice in all of that what you found, it was intentional and it was relational. And the last thing we find, this is why I can't believe it's not more written about Lydia, is that when you start to grow in this process, you find an increased desire to invest in other people. Lydia opens her home. She had a really nice home, a large home, in fact. She opens her home in the first church in Philippi, which we get a letter in the Bible called the book of Philippi, is because a group of people, her friends, are gathering in her home. First church. She's a leader, at least initially. She opens her home. I want to invest in other people and other people to have the kind of environment of sitting around and dialoguing and, and asking questions as I did. And she's so committed now to giving to others, investing in others the way God invested in her, she becomes like Mrs. Philanthropy in Greek Roman Empire. Paul will write about her church or the church started by her in the book of Philippi. He says, I asked a lot of people for gifts to help with some people who were poor, some people who were hurting. And i got to tell you, nobody gave like the church in Philippi. Nobody. You guys are incredibly generous, devoted to other people. 
And so as you think about our church, we're trying to help you become the best version of yourself. And we have found that Jesus and God and his message has done that for us. You may not find that to be true. We're trying to persuade you. Why? Because that's what friends do. When you find, tell a good movie, you try and convince other people to go to that movie, right? You try and persuade them. In the same way, we found some good stuff. And we'd like you to at least investigate that good stuff. And we have found that our lives are increasingly challenged to invest in other people, to be a better version of ourselves as a husband, as a wife, as a, as a dad, as a mom, as a leader, as a son. What does it look like for you to invest in others? That's what our church is about. I met some greeters a couple months ago, about a month ago, for a greeter lunch for training. And like, man, we love giving back to people and greeting people because somebody gave and greeted us. I met some folks volunteering for the first time last night in our children's ministry, and they said, I said, what's it like being a bouncer? And they're like, yeah, it's kind of fun being a bouncer. So, you know, I can't remember if it's Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone. They start at B.A. Baracus. They all start as bouncers. You, who knows where your career is going to go here in the children's ministry? And, and they're like, yeah, I just love giving back because somebody took care of our kids. I had a, a volunteer singer who sang a few weeks ago. I'm like, it's so great to be back on the stage and singing. I, somebody came in the other day and said, hey, Chad, we wrote a check for this new project you guys have going on to raise money to put videos uh, online so we can send it to our friends and watch them out of town. Man, we're just so excited. And, and we just serve a community that invests in other people. And there's something about this message of Jesus that, that pushes and encourages us to do even more of that. But remember, spiritual growth is both intentional and it's relational. So to do that, I thought we'd end today by hearing a story of somebody who, who's been on her own process, her own journey, and what her growth has looked like. So if you could give a warm horizon welcome to my friend Natalie. Let's invite her up. <laughs> Natalie, come on up. Good to see you. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, what areas have you seen spiritual growth, or if you don't use the word spiritual, it could be, but for you, what areas have you seen change or growth in your life um, since coming to Horizon um, and ways in which God's been sort of challenging you to become the best version of yourself? Sure. Um, One of the ways that I've really challenged myself in a way that's equipped me in my family life and my work life and relating to friends is deep Bible study. Hmm. And so sometimes that might look like a group Bible study that I'm doing with other women from Horizon. And that's a chance for us to learn from each other. You know, what are you getting out of this? Um, How are you applying this? Sometimes it looks like an individual Bible study. I even do like the U Bible app, if any of you um, Mm -hmm. are familiar with that. And um, also the deep Bible that we do in the equipping service, which is the 850 that was this morning. And then there's a Saturday 430 service. And one thing that I've been really working on right now that I learned through um, an individual study is this idea of um, discernment and how that affects um, anxiety and fear. So talks about in Philippians, you know, do not be anxious in anything, but essentially take everything to Christ and, you know, ask for help and come to him humbly. And so there's a process of it's discern, assess, and respond. So it's this idea that, okay, discerning, do I even really need to worry about this, you know? Hmm. And then, okay, I do need to worry about this. How am I going to handle it? And then going and doing it. And um, one way in my um, family life that that, um, has affected me is my son, Graham, who's actually um, sitting with us, he... um, has a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. and he's in third grade. So imagine what's important to you at that age. Sure. And, um, he had forgotten about a test and he realized as he was going to bed. Mm. And so essentially, you know, we talked and I said, you know, I don't know what we're going to be able to do. Maybe the teacher will give you a pass. We don't know. 
But what I can tell you is God is big and you can trust him and, you know, you can trust him with the results. And Mm -hmm. that was helpful not only because I knew what discerned whether or not, you know, and how to respond, but also knowing that through what I've learned about Jesus, that I really could trust that answer. I was being Mm -hmm. authentic Mm -hmm. with my son. Mm -hmm. And your son, speaking of Lydia, her household uh, got baptized. Your son got baptized as well, if I remember, right? He did. So uh, he's been learning a lot through going to East Station. And he was actually baptized by one of the teenage East Station volunteers. And it was just so meaningful just thinking about all the ways that our family has grown since we've been here. And to know know, it's not just what we're learning as parents to equip Mm -hmm. us, but also how other people in this community build into my kids. Yeah, one of the things that's cool is we try and uh, have teenage. We, we try and make church. It's not something us adults do. That we have teenagers and even some middle school students who are involved in the teaching process with other adults. And so it's exciting to see teach, uh, kids teaching kids. Um, obviously with supervision. We also coordinate curriculums. We write a curriculum at least twice a year where what we're studying here last year was Get a Clue. Um, we're doing another one coming up in about four months that we wrote an original curriculum called In the Wild based on the book of Job. We're going to go through the book of Job together in a very fun animal safari type series. And we've written a version for the children's ministry right now. So that what you're talking about and your teenagers are talking about, your kids are all coordinated to have those conversations. So. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Horizons 2 Service Designer. What are some of the ways you mentioned the idea that we have different services? And we talk about this a lot. We've tried to really emphasize this series. So we have four services. Two of them are 100% different from the other two. Totally different music. Totally different message. Not traditional contemporary. All radically contemporary services. Two, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we spend like six months to a year to study the whole book of Luke, the whole book of Leviticus, the whole book of Ezekiel. Um, lots of application, but a lot of more Christian songs. You're singing, you're standing up to sing, your prayer, communion. Some of you are saying, that's why I don't go. Some of you are saying, oh, that's the service I've been looking for. That's what we do at our equipping service. And then our exploring service, we presume that maybe you're not particularly excited about standing up and singing. We're going to find music you know and, and tap into spiritual themes like we did today with that Michael Jackson song and that, that uh, the U2 song. So how has that unique design of creating environments for for people to grow helped you and your family? Well, it's helped my family because um, we know that we can invite people. So even if they're exploring God, they're not sure. There's a service that I can confidently say you'll enjoy. (laughs) And then with the equipping service, it's what you were mentioning about, you know, not wanting to coast. So it's this Mm -hmm. idea that we're learning new things that we can apply, you know, with our kids in the business world. I even... uh, I sometimes ghostwrite and do publicity for a former P&G executive Mm -hmm. who writes on leadership. And I actually should have asked you, but I borrowed a little bit of a lesson that you shared one time time. at the equipping service for one of his um, columns that he writes for Inc. So Mm. it's this idea that, you know, at this service, yes, you're getting a lot of life application, but even at a service where we're going line by line through the Bible, there really is things that you can apply right now in your life. And maybe if you're like, I don't know what my goals are for next year, maybe what you need to do is learn what they should be. And really, the Bible can help you with that. And so last question. So a lot of people are going, Bible, that sounds like getting way too serious and becoming a Bible thumper. So if you were to maybe jump back and tell yourself five years ago, why has the Bible been helpful, not made you more... I, I had a friend of mine once said, read the Bible. Is that that book that makes you more judgmental? Or that might have been a Simpson episode. I can't remember. One of the two. But people think of the Bible as this archaic, dusty book that makes you become more hypocritical and judgmental. So if you could maybe get in the flux capacitor, jump back five years and tell yourself, why is it worth trying some of these spiritual practices and how has it benefited you? So if I could go back a few years and sort of give myself some advice, I would just tell myself how 
you know, the Bible is not um, something that's just old. It's a living thing, and you can learn things to apply in various ways. Uh, it's really brought me a lot of joy. So you talk about using the Bible to know, you know, what your priorities should be and um, what to worry about, what not to worry about. The Bible can really help you, okay, like, I don't need to worry about this. I can trust in God, and so therefore I can have joy. And it's helpful with, you know, friendship relationships. And right now I'm discerning through a different job opportunity and thinking about, okay, maybe this is a time for me to take on a more challenging opportunity. It's an opportunity for me to trust more in God. And I know that in addition to, you know, what I get on service, in addition to prayer, that through reading the Bible, even something I've read before, I may get something that I can use um, in my daily life at work and with my kids. Awesome. Can we thank Natalie for her story? Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, as we conclude the service, one of the things we try and do is not create just environments here on the weekends, which we do, but we also try and create special events throughout the year. So one of those coming up uh, for you and maybe for your friends, one of our favorite traditions is our Christmas Eve service. So this year we are, we are offering nine Christmas Eve services. So we've been doing eight for several years. We've upped it to nine. Um, at the end of eight, we said we couldn't do any more. But this year it creates a unique window because Christmas Eve happens on a Monday. So because of that, we're going to offer all nine over two days, which we've done for Easter but never Christmas, because we want to make sure you and your family and friends can all have a spot. They're all identical services, but three of them occur on Sunday, December 23rd, and we are canceling our Saturday service that weekend because we couldn't do ten. So we decided that we're going to do nine. So no Saturday services that evening, um, but we're going to have three on Sunday. But notice the time change. For the ten o'clockers, it won't change, but nine, ten, and eleven a.m., then on Christmas Eve itself, there's only six. So if you choose to come on Sunday, please don't come back on, on the next day unless there's tickets available. So I would just say, and I know some of you like coming to two. Um, so if you can, we have complimentary tickets. The tickets are solely designed for us to make sure that we don't have anyone in, in, in an overflow room, which isn't ideal. So we can almost always get you your first or your second option. The tickets are available starting today. Go to the rear atrium right across from the big old fireplace by the bathrooms back there and grab yourself a ticket. And again, you'll see there 9, 10, 11, and then the next day 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. We're not going to take a break. So we're going we're gonna to eat on the go uh, as the team goes. Um, and then lastly, we always cancel the whole weekend services the last weekend of December. And that's so that we can all recover. So we would love to have you and your family and friends at our Christmas Eve service. We've been playing this thing for, I think, six months now. It is really, really going to be great. So we look forward to having you and your friends. We'll see you all next week with a brand new Christmas series. Thanks.